and then we're going to continue on in our conversation that we've been having called Jesus is Our Peace um, in the season of Lent, and today is Palm Sunday, as you already know. And so we're going to talk a little bit about the Palm Sunday story as we get prepared for this Holy Week, um, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful for this opportunity that we consider a privilege to come to this public school and to worship you. We feel so honored that we get to come into this place and be hosted by this school who has been such an important partner to us. And so God, because of that, we, we desperately want you to bless them. We want you to be present in this school, make a difference for these students and the faculty and the staff and their parents of these kids. God, we love them. Even though we're not physically with them, we, we love them and we want the love that we have for them to to be um, present in the space as you are present in the space. So we welcome you in this time as well. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to each one of us, that the things we talk about today, there be specific things you want to highlight to each person here. And so we ask that you would do that, that we would be people who are different when we leave today than when we came in. We thank you so much for who you are and that promise of your presence with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so how many of you actually have gotten so near to a famous person that you actually talked to them. Did anybody share a story where you actually talked to them? Okay, so I thought I would share a couple of stories of famous people that I have actually gotten to talk to up close. Now, the problem with that is that there's only one genre of famous people that I've ever gotten to actually talk to or get close to, and that is um, Christian contemporary music artists from the 90s. So people in the front here, my wonderful Mill students, I'm so sorry that some of these names will not be recognizable to you or anyone else who kind of feel like you missed the 90s Christian community or Christian, um, it was like CCM, right? CCM artists, right? If you missed that, don't worry about it. It wasn't that much that you missed. And I'm not really trying to put it down. I just want anybody to feel left out. So there were three encounters that I had in person with some of these Christian contemporary music artists, okay? The first was uh, very exciting for me because I was a huge fan of the hip-hop group DC Talk. Okay, I don't know that we can really call it hip-hop, but whatever they were doing. All right, so these guys were rapping and singing, and one of their favorite subjects to rap about was Jesus and the Bible, and um, things like the Proverbs 31 passage where it talks about how beauty is fleeting, and so they wanted to be a good example to younger men to just kind of say, listen, we're looking for women who are women of character, not just the outward appearance, right? Like God looks at the heart, and so should we. And so I thought that was so amazing because I was a little bit of an awkward tomboy in middle school. And so I just thought, that's really cool. Look at the heart, guys. And so I, I came up and I met these guys, the three DC Talk guys, and, and their wives were with them. They were like supermodels. And I was like, Wait a second. <laughs> and I mean, I mean, no problem with beautiful women, but I was just like, it, it was confusing. Do you see why it was confusing for me? So the closer that I got up to them, the more confusing it was to me about how I was perceiving like who they were, okay? So uh, I have to be honest and say that my like perception of who they were kind of deflated a little bit when I got that close to them, okay? The second experience was I, I literally, and I mean, you know how sometimes we say literally and we mean figuratively? Okay, I literally, as in literally, ran into Stephen Curtis Chapman as he walked out of the bathroom at Bethel University. Like he physically ran into me. And I didn't realize it was him at first because once I was up close to him, the guy's like an inch taller than me. Like he was so small. And I'd seen him on stages before and I just thought, this guy's got to be like six something. But then I realized that they were doing some things with how you perceived him from, the, from afar. And anyway, I just didn't even know it was him. And so 
This idea of like Stephen Curtis Chapman on the stage was like really different when I was looking at him eye to eye with my five foot two and three fourths height. So just like, you know, my perception changed a little bit. And then the third one was the most deflating. And I, I definitely don't want to throw this wonderful artist under the bus, so I won't by the end. But I was 13 and I got to go backstage at a Billy Graham crusade to meet the queen herself, Amy Grant, right? So um, I'm approaching Amy Grant, and it's kind of like, almost like, is she glowing a little bit? Like, this is amazing. So I'm coming up to her with my um, CD cover. Remember CDs? And so I pull out the CD cover, and I've got my Sharpie, and I'm like, Amy Grant's going to sign my baby, baby CD, or whatever that was. And I walk up to her, and she sees me coming. And as I approach, she turns to her manager, who was walking with me, because he was bringing us backstage. And she looks at him, and she says, I thought we weren't signing any more autographs today. I'm 13 years old. Man, I turned bright red and I was just like, oh, Amy, I'm so sorry. You know, anyway, I walk away from that and I was like, wait a second. I'm not sorry. Like, sign my thing. What is with that? <laughs> and it all came full circle like three months ago because I heard her interviewed on this podcast about her Enneagram type, her personality type. So you don't need to know anything about this to get this, but she's an Enneagram 9. And basically, I was listening to her talk about who she is, and I forgave her <laughs> after all those years, because it's been a little while since I was 13. So I forgave Amy Grant, and if someday I might get a chance to tell her that I forgave her. So <laughs> what I'm trying to say is, I, I, I hope that I'm not the only one that's had this experience. When you see people from afar, and then you get up close, and you get to know them, you realize, like, Oh, like they don't fit all these expectations I had for them. So maybe you've had an experience that the person was even more amazing than you thought. But for the most part, I think that when we see people who are famous or are known, and then you get close to them, you realize like they're just a normal person or maybe even kind of like a socially awkward person that won't sign my CD, okay? The, the, the perception that you have of them was deflated. And I tell you all these awkward stories from the 90s to give this point. I think this is how a lot of the people, my perception would be, they perceived Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the first Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating today. And I, I want to suggest that many of them were having an experience where their perception of who Jesus was was being deflated in the moment as Jesus is coming through the town. So I want us to read that, that encounter of the very first Palm Sunday. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Mark 11. We'll have it up here on the screen. Um, I think maybe we'll have it on the screen. Did I put it on the screen? Maybe I didn't. So it's going to be in Mark 11. So listen to the words. What I want you to listen for is what might have been um, changing people's perceptions of who they thought Jesus was as this story is happening. So you can either follow along or maybe just close your eyes and imagine what it would have been like to be there and how you might have perceived, this, at this point, this very famous person coming into Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany in the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and, and will send it back shortly. So they went and found a colt uh, out inside in the street, tied in a doorway, and they untied it, and some people standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, uh, and the people let them go, let it go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people, these are the people I'm talking about, spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. 
like the ones we just saw the kids wave. And those who went ahead of those followed, and as they were following, they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts, and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, so it's kind of a parade happening. And I want you to think about that. Think about being one of these people who's there, who's seeing Jesus up close for the very first time. And I have to imagine that some of these people who are putting down their coats and and branches and waving these branches have had expectations. Maybe if many, if not most, had heard about Jesus as this human being who is saying that he is someone special, who is saying that he's the Messiah. Now, if some people had not yet heard about Jesus himself, which I think most people would, anybody there in Jerusalem would have heard about the idea of a coming Messiah. And the way that they would talk about this Messiah is that the Messiah is going to be the king of this kingdom the kingdom that they're singing about here and shouting about, the coming kingdom of, of our father David, David the king. So the, the descendant of the king, the king is coming. This is a big deal. And so imagine you think for a long time that a Messiah is coming, a king is coming, you've heard about Jesus and all the things that he's done, and as you're looking down the parade to see somebody come, you look down and as you see, you see this guy in common normal clothes, riding on a, a little colt or a donkey, And following him are his disciples. No knights in shining armor, right? What we think is kind of gangly teenagers, like like I was saying about middle school stuff. They were young guys who were nothing special, and here they are following him on his little horse. Think about this. And people would have thought, I can't imagine that they would. They would have to have thought, okay, this isn't exactly what we were picturing about this this general-like king who was going to come in and lead this, I think many of them would have perceived an uprising against the group of people who were oppressing them at that time, the Romans. And so where's the guy's stallion? Like, does he have a sword? Is it hidden somewhere on the colt? Like, what exactly is happening here? Because we have been expecting and waiting for a long time. And, And of course, okay, so the story suggests that they keep singing and shouting. And I know that for a lot of them, it must have been in my mind, I'm imagining that it must have been they've been waiting for so long that they're going to, to just hope, like, this guy might be our last chance. 500 years, their, their generations of families have been waiting for something to happen, and now something's happening. Jesus is riding in. Now, when a king was riding back into their city, so Jerusalem in this case, when a king did that, what it usually meant is that they had just won a battle. So perhaps the people were going... Something had happened and news didn't travel as quickly then as it does now. And and so he's coming back to tell us that there was a victory, that something happened. But then we see the end of the story. They all gather and uh, they went to the temple courts and he looked around, but it was late. So they went to sleep. That's it. There was no big party. There was no victory, dance. Nothing seemed to have happened. So you've got these people who are cheering and, and shouting these words and waving these branches. And what we now know is that those same people that were cheering are the same people that were jeering and having these kinds of of negative yelling and shouting towards Jesus just a week later shouting crucify him. And maybe that feels like it's easy to judge those people like what's going on in just a, a week's time. But maybe that's what it's like when you feel like your expectations were deflated that seriously. And you really thought something was gonna happen. And it didn't. And I want us to try to have some empathy. 
see for those people this morning because I know a lot of you and I know your stories and a lot of the experiences that we have with our relationship with God and trying to figure Jesus out and what does it mean to be somebody who really takes our faith seriously is full of some deflated expectations. Certainly with that, certainly with other people. I don't know if there's anyone in this room who hasn't had some sort of deflated expectation around the church or around what someone told you that God was like. It's part of our life. And that's what these people were experiencing too. And so today, what I want us to look at is if Jesus really is this king, this um, prince of peace that we've been talking about, Jesus being our peace, and really is a, a, a God of a kingdom that can offer peace to us, yet we're people who sometimes have these deflated expectations. When we look at this reality of who Jesus was as a different kind of king, is there a way for us to engage with what happened and to be people who enter into this story and the story of who Jesus is as a different kind of king, and it would help us to move towards Jesus as a prince of peace, to move towards the peace that so many of us feel that we lack often when we feel overwhelmed, anxious, fearful, frustrated, angry, lots of other things. And these things are real and they happen, and there's not actually any shame around that stuff, but how do we move towards that peace? And I think reflecting about who Jesus is as the true Prince of Peace can help us do that. So that's what we're going to do today, okay? So um, we're going to do one of my favorite segments that I like to call Seminary for Everyone. How many people have been here for a Seminary for Everyone moment? Okay, so seminary is a graduate school for pastors, and it's where we learn things like preaching and how to set up a portable church. Just kidding, we didn't learn about that. We had to figure that part out ourselves. But you learn about things like caring well for people and teaching the Bible. And here's the thing. I just think that you all are really intelligent people. And there's nothing that I learned there that you're not able to understand. So today I want to do one of those examples where we just look pretty briefly at a concept that sometimes we would talk about in seminary. And so one of the things we often talk about in seminary is when we're looking at books of the Bible, you're asking various questions, right? Like what genre is this? What's happening in the big story, the meta narrative, or the big God story as we say with our kids? And then also what we look for is the themes that are present in each book. Because each book of the Gospels, for instance, as you know, there's multiple versions of the story written by different people. And it turns out they're writing to different audiences too. And so there's different themes that the different writers of the Gospels are trying to bring to the surface. And there's usually more than one. And so in the book of Mark, there's a theme that I think is pretty consistent throughout. And so I want to point that out to you guys, and then I want us to just do like a flyover of Mark to see all of the themes and how that helps us understand who Jesus is. And it's going to be the shortest seminary lecture that at least I was ever present for, okay? And then we're going to move on, okay? But that's cool. So a few people have told me they love seminary for everyone, so if you're like, I don't love this, their voices are louder right now, so you're going to need to tell me, all right? So Mark, what's the theme in Mark? There's a lot of different themes, but one of the ways you can tell is by looking at the beginning and the end of the book. And then you're looking for like a thread, almost like a needle throughout, where you see this theme coming to the surface. So here in Mark, we have a, a clue right at the very beginning. The very first sentence in the book of Mark is this. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. The word Messiah could also be swapped out for Christ. Why? Because Messiah is the Hebrew word and Christ is the Greek word, or at least our translation of the Hebrew and the Greek. Okay? Hebrew is mostly OT. Old Testament and Greeks, mostly New Testament. So it could have said, um, in some tra translations, it would say the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Christ, or about Jesus Christ, about Jesus the Messiah. Now, what does those two words mean? If those two words are both the same, then they have the same meaning. And the meaning is the anointed one, the anointed one. 
So Christ is not Jesus' last name. It means the anointed one. Jesus, the anointed one. What do we think about when we think about the anointed ones? Well, in the history of Israel, when they talked about the kings, they called the kings the Lord's anointed ones. And so right there, boom, Jesus, the king, the anointed one. And the reason they were called anointed is that they'd anoint the kings with oil, like you see with Saul or with David. And what they represented was God's presence and spirit being upon them as a leader, okay? So Jesus, right here, this is the story of Jesus, the anointed king, the real king, capital the anointed, capital T, capital A. Jesus is it. This is the way that Mark starts. He's saying right away that this is the Lord's anointed. This is the king. And so throughout the book, we see this theme, and this is the theme I want us to follow. We see the theme of Jesus as the servant king. There's uh, Matthew, the theme of king is throughout, but there's a very distinct way that Mark talks about Jesus, and it's as a servant king, as a servant king coming to not only to reign, but to serve the people of, of his kingdom. And so we see that throughout, and so I love thinking about this idea of servant king, and I think the phrase prince of peace that we talk a lot about during Christmas time, right, fits that really well, right? A prince of shalom, a royalty coming in and saying, I want to be a king of shalom, I want to be a, a different kind of king. Does that make sense, what we're saying? So let me just go through and, and talk through the ways that we see Jesus being this kind of king. And if you were reading Mark, if you were reading it for the first time back in the first century, you would have a couple different types of kings you might be comparing Jesus to as Mark is trying to point this out, okay? You would have some Jewish people. The Jewish people would be thinking about the kings of Israel, which you see in First and Second Kings in the Bible and First and Second Samuel and all of these different places where they're talking about these kings. So there was a whole season where that was really pointed to in multiple books of the Old Testament. So they for sure would be thinking about those kings. Now, we know also that Mark is writing to a Roman audience. We think that he was really aware that some people reading this would not be historically Jewish people, but would be a Roman. So they wouldn't have as same understanding. They would for sure be thinking about the Roman Caesar. And so would some of these other people because the Roman Caesar wants you to be thinking about him. That is for sure. And so at this time, they're under the oppression of Rome. And guess, who, guess what the uh, Roman Caesar likes people to call him? The Prince of Peace. Why? Because he was working really hard to say, listen, Rome, the empire, has taken over all of you little nationalities. Sorry about that. But we're going to do a new thing called the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And that means all these nationalities that we've colonized and taken over are going to be at peace with each other. Got it, everybody? And so it was not a real peace. It was a false peace because if the few people that had all the power told you that you had to be peaceful and you stepped out of line, there'd be no more peace for that moment because they were commanding the peace. Does that make sense, the difference there? So people are listening to Mark's book, probably read to them, and they're picturing Caesar. They're picturing the kings of Israel, and this is the kind of thing that they see sticking out to them. So uh, we're going to put this up here, like I said, shortest lecture ever. All right? So look at looking through the book of Mark. You don't need to turn to all these things, but you can see it on the screen. So in Mark 8, we see a few things, and it's probably in every book. I'm just pointing out a couple things. This is where we see Jesus feed the 4,000. And then later towards the end of Mark 8, he heals a blind man. And so what we see here is that Jesus is the kind of king that it offers provision and healing. And the kind of kings that people would have experienced, and I'll say what these things are if you can't see them because they're tiny. He would offer provision and healing, and the, the princes of power, so we're contrasting the prince of peace to the prince of power. The prince of power would be about greed and about distance from the people. Absolutely. No peasants come near me. Then we turn to Mark 9. Oh man, right away in Mark 9, we see 
uh, a number of things happen, but one of the things that happens is that there's, uh, the disciples are, are fighting about who's the most important, which turns out they fight about that often. And Jesus is like, you guys, you have it all wrong. And he says, anyone who wants to be first must be the last and must be the servant of all. And then Jesus does something that blows everyone's mind. He gets down. Remember this whole thing of getting close to. He gets down and he welcomes some little kids who were like not exalted at all in this culture, totally considered like out of sight, out of mind. And he picks up these little kids and he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome, whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So he's basically saying like, loving these kids who are considered on the margins and not important is like loving me and loving Yahweh, God. So what do we see about this kind of king? He's a kind of king that cares for the powerless. Kids would have represented the powerless. But we see that all these other princes of power want to draw close, draw close to the people of power and be surrounded by the people who also have power and also can, can give them power. That would have been something people would have noticed. All right, so let me keep going. Mark 10. Right away in Mark 10, we see a number of different things happen. Another experience with kids happens. And then towards the end, uh, we see that Jesus is gathering the, the disciples together, and he says this, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, so people with power, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. And then he says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great must become your servant. And whoever wants to must be wants to serve must be a slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many you see how he's using this like we don't lord over we come up under and so to me that's this so clearly this idea of powering over versus serving others and empowering them you see that distinct difference that would have been so obvious and he actually uses a specific example here okay so then we get to the story in uh, mark 11 that i just read jesus is riding in on a little donkey right? And so we see this idea that he's riding in on a humble colt, but if you were a king or a, pr a prince of power, you would come in on the most grand of all animals you could find or being carried or whatever, but you wanted to seem important. And so we see this very different distinction in just that story alone, don't we? And then we go on to, to the chapter 12, and we see another, a, a few things that stick out, but one I want to point out is this is where there's one of the encounters of the great commandment. Or somebody asking Jesus, what do you say is the most important commandment of all? And Jesus responds and says, the most important one is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second one is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no command greater than these. Here is this, this king, this prince of peace, saying, let me tell you what it looks like to be a king in my mind. It is to love God and to love neighbor. Where the princes of power would be self focused and self-absorbed, trying to do anything to keep the power that they have. That would have been really obvious that that's the way that people engaged. And then we continue to go on in, in, in um, Mark 14, and we see uh, this is the woman that comes to anoint Jesus. And everybody goes, why is she bringing this expensive perfume? But she anoints him. Why is she anointing him? Because he's the anointed one. And he says, she's preparing me for my burial, slash, I'm going to ride in as king. Like, this is who I have ridden in. I'm I'm a king. So you see that sense of anointing. So he's anointed by a lowly person, but the kings wanted to be anointed by a powerful, important person. And you see those powerful, important people declaring their kingship over them, where here is this woman who comes and does this thing for Jesus. And then we get to Mark 15. These are the passages about the crucifixion themselves that we'll obviously be engaging with in Easter. 
And we notice in the story in Mark 15 that Jesus is given a crown of thorns. This is his coronation, you guys. A crown of thorns. And then a sign hanging above him that says the king of the Jews. And so here, as a king, his coronation is him being mocked with a crown of thorns. But what happens typically in a coronation? Someone is exalted with a crown of jewels. We are seeing this contrast so significantly. And then also in Mark 15, we see Jesus being the one who gives his life to love people, where we know many stories of kings of this time who would have other people's lives taken in order to save their own life. They did not see the value of anyone else's life. In fact, they'd let other people die in spite of them. And then in Mark 15, also, we see that when Jesus is actually hanging on the cross and he dies, this, this big curtain is torn in the, in the temple. And the curtain represents the barrier between everybody and God. And Jesus' death tears down the barrier. So what kind of king is Jesus? The kind that tears down barriers. But these other types of kings and kings and princes of power, they put up barriers. And then finally, at the very end of the book, we see, we see Jesus coming back to life, his resurrection, and he offers kind of like a royal decree to everybody and sends them out saying, you now get to go share this good news and you get to be people of healing and you get to be good news people and you get to be people who set people free from the things that are holding them back in my name. He ends it with a royal decree. So do you see this contrast here between these two? I mean, it's so significant, the contrast between what everybody would have been thinking about in regards to princes of of power and the kings of the day and the kings of their past. And I don't know about you, but when I think about this list, I look at these two things, and it's similar to what we see around us in the world today when it comes to people who have power, whether that's power in nationalities or or governments or uh, businesses or anything else. We see a lot of princes of power, I think. And it makes a big difference for the the kingdoms of the people, right? If you have a boss or a supervisor who is following some of these princes of power tactics, man, is it miserable to be a part of that team. It matters for the citizens of the kingdom what kind of prince of power we're talking about, a prince of peace or a prince of power. And so what we get the opportunity to understand here is that when Jesus says, my peace I give you, I don't give as the world gives, he's saying, I don't give the kind of kingdoms that the little kingdoms of the world gives. In my kingdom, the citizens can have true peace. So put that up on the screen. In King Jesus' kingdom, the citizens can have true peace. But we get to decide if we want to truly be citizens of the kingdom that Jesus is the king of. In King Jesus' kingdom, the citizens can have true peace. So as citizens, as heirs to the kingdom of God, and that's who Paul says we are, we're not only the citizens but heirs, to this power that God has that's different than the power of this world, we get to choose. Are we going to move towards a prince of peace or not? And when I look at all this this long list, I want to just boil it down to some things that I think make a lot of sense to us, where we might say, okay, how would I see if I'm somebody who's living in this kingdom or this kingdom? How would I know? Okay, here's some words to help us think about this. The first one would be, if it's power versus peace, the question I'm asking is, which which one are we moving towards in our life? And and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I just want you to think about it. So we see greed and generosity. Moving towards greed or generosity, did you see that in the way that Jesus reigns? That's a question for us. Are we people who have our hands tightly fisted around the things that we want to hold on to? It's mine? Or do we have open hands waiting to be people who see ourselves as being generous towards the world that God loves? Maybe the second one would be an important one for us to think about, and that would be fear versus trust. Are we moving towards fear or are we moving towards trust? You see how these are spectrums, kind of? 
Because sometimes we're people who, if we're honest, we're moving towards fear, and we're choosing that on a daily basis. I heard a story this week about a student at Bethel University where I get to work part-time, and uh, she found out just recently that her mom has a pretty serious form of cancer. And so she did what a loving daughter would do, and she made some bracelets for her friends to wear so they can pray for her mom. But it's a pretty serious condition. And on the bracelet it says, even if. And what she said is that her family is deciding that they're going to be an even-if family, not a what-if family. Because if you live as a what-if person, then you know for sure you're walking towards fear. But if you can be an even-if person and say, even if the worst happens, I know God is with me. Even if I go through these things in life, I know my future hope. And this is what this family is being confronted with pretty significantly. But I resonate with this. My brain is full of what-ifs all the time. I think being a person who's moving towards trust is being an even-if person instead of a what-if person. The next, next ones I want to put up, pride versus humility, or then the next one would be hoarding power versus empowering. People who want to be lifting other people up and not tearing them down, right? Like not lording things over but coming up and serving. It's still about empowering. Every single one of us here has some power and, everyone, and privilege, and some of us have, every one of us has people who have more power and privilege than us and people who have less than. And it's our concern to figure out how to empower those people. I had an awesome conversation with one of my friends this week who is an African-American woman, and I and found out that her supervisor of 10 years is leaving her organization. And I said, how are you feeling about that? And I wasn't ready for her answer. She said, listen, this man has made a way for me as a woman of color more than any other person in my life. He has shared power and authority. He has gotten out of the way. He has created space for me and who I am as a woman in ways that I have never experienced before. And I know that he didn't do it because he wants to be a hero. And most people will never know what he did. He did it because he knows that the best thing to do is to be someone who comes up under and lifts up. And that's the way to have an awesome team. And as she said that, I was thinking about this message and I thought, man, does that not sound like the servant King Jesus? And does that not seem like an awesome goal to have as a person who has power in any setting that people would think that about you? I thought that was an amazing story and it really made it real for me. So then we have two more, control versus surrender, which is very connected to this last one, self-sufficient versus turning towards a savior. We have a choice which one we're moving towards. And it doesn't help to pretend that we're not moving towards self-sufficiency when we are. What does it look like to say, I actually do need a savior? Not because I'm not fearfully and wonderfully made, not because I don't have gifts and talents and strengths, not because I haven't read some books about how to be a good person or whatever, but because I need to be saved from myself and from the world and from the things that are holding me back. We all know there's things that are holding us back. And so many of us have chosen for Jesus to be our savior or the one who takes us from where we've been and brings us to where we can be in right relationship with God. But we need someone to save us every day, you guys. And we need to choose that surrender every day. It's not one of those one-time things because this, uh, these things are pulling at us. Does anyone else feel that pull towards these things? It's like without even thinking about it, it's like a magnet. And so when we choose to move towards the Prince of Peace, that's a significant and intentional choice. And I feel like indecision in this is actually a decision and we're going to get sucked into these things. And so I want to just leave you guys with some questions, okay? To, to just think about as we're entering Holy Week and we're going into a week where we're going to celebrate on Friday Jesus' death and what that meant for us and what Jesus accomplished on the cross and then celebrate his resurrection on Sunday morning. Okay, the first question is this. Are you moving towards King Jesus 
in this season of your life. I just don't really think there's that much neutral. It's kind of like you're moving towards that or you're not. I, I don't know that it's as static as we'd like to believe. So you can kind of hint where if you are or not based on those things. If you're moving towards this side, then maybe you're not moving towards King Jesus right now. What would that look like? So that's the second question. What does moving, forward, moving further towards Jesus look like for you in this season? It's not usually something huge, you guys. It's usually something small, like a little rhythm that helps you remember that these things that we talked about are actually something we can pursue versus being sucked into fear and sucked into greed and these other things. It's usually a small rhythm. It's usually having a conversation with somebody who can help you talk through it. It's usually being really honest with God about how you feel about some of the stuff you're going through right now. It's usually not that big. But what does it look like to move further towards Jesus? And then finally, have you surrendered truly to King Jesus in your life? Maybe this is something you did at one point. Maybe you really haven't. Maybe you're like, look, I think Jesus is a good guy. Seems like a good example. But I don't know about this giving my life to this person thing. I think this is an important question for all of us, whether or not it's something we've decided yesterday and we need to decide again today to give up that control or not. Because let me tell you this. Let me say that this conversation we've been having about Jesus as peace, many times we've said peace is not the absence of conflict, is it? Peace isn't running away from hard things. Because look at Jesus' example. He moved towards the hardest thing. Peace costs something. It costs something. And here on Easter, Jesus is saying, let me show you how much it costs because it costs everything to have true shalom and true peace. And so for all of us, we have a choice. If we want to be a part of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of peace and, and be one that is surrendered to the king of peace, the prince of peace, we have that choice and it's going to cost you something. It's your heart. It's your life. It's who you are. And it's a big cost, but it is worth it because it means that you're actually moving towards these things. Jesus is the only one who existed as a human being in everything that we talked about over here, right? But we can be moving towards those things as a choice that we have. But without Jesus in our life, I just don't think that we can. And so I'm going to have the band come up. And as they're coming up, I just want you to look at these three questions and be thinking about them and what that might mean for you. So I'm actually just going to be quiet while they come up so you can look at these questions for a minute, okay? In this song that we're going to sing as we move into our time of communion, there's this line that says, though kingdoms rise and fall, your throne withstands it all. And we have to acknowledge we live in these little kingdoms, and they're real, and we need to engage in them. But they are little kingdoms. They are not the true kingdom of God. And it it's, shouldn't be shocking to us how different the kingdom of God is. The kingdoms will rise and fall, but God is the one who's going to be king throughout. And we're going to see that future hope that we're going to experience. And so as we come forward for communion, I've said this before, but it's an opportunity for you to say, to get up out of your seat and say, I surrender again. I surrender again. That's what you get to do every week. And turns out, usually it takes more than just once a week to do that. 
but it's a way to physically get up and do that. And we take the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and we dip it into the blood, which represents his, into, ooh, dip it into the juice, representing the blood of Jesus on the cross, as we look forward to Easter. This is what we get to do every week, to remember that, because Jesus said, remember me when you do this. So you don't have to be a member here to join in, just somebody who's trying to seek after Jesus in your life. We'll form a line here and here, and you can take the, the communion and dip it into the cup, and then there'll be people here on the walls for you to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. And the communion is gluten-free, so anyone can participate. So those who are serving communion, come forward as we sing these songs to respond.